from the ACLU. This is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. As millions of children head back to school, some states have banned mask mandates on school grounds. As of this recording, school districts in eight states cannot require students to wear a mask in school. If they do, many risk losing crucial state funding. This ban ignores national recommendations by the CDC to wear a mask indoors for those who are unvaccinated or in an area of high COVID transmission. For children with disabilities or families with high-risk medical conditions, the ban makes in-person learning perilous. Many children are forced back into remote learning, even though studies have shown students, particularly students of color and those with disabilities, fall behind when they can't attend school in person. Excluding these children from in-person learning violates federal law, which is why the ACLU's Disability Rights Project is suing on behalf of groups of parents with vulnerable children in both South Carolina and Iowa. One of those parents is Samantha Bovers. My name is Samantha Bovers. I'm the parent of a six-year-old daughter and a four-year-old son with autism, and I'm one of the nine plaintiffs in the case in South Carolina that is suing our governor and other members of our state for the right to have masks because our state has a ban against masks in schools. While Samantha's son Porter's immune system isn't compromised, the high transmissibility of COVID-19 is still a greater threat to his health than to his peers. Due to his lack of communication skills and some of his sensory skills, He has had issues with basic illnesses and has had to be hospitalized for things like the flu. Porter's not a kid that can tell you some basic issues with his health. He can tell you every fact about dinosaurs. He's not going to be able to tell you if he can't smell, if he can't taste, if his chest hurts. None of that is going to be communication he can do. And a few years ago when he had the flu... He stopped drinking, he stopped eating, and we had no idea what was wrong. He can't communicate and tell us what hurts. Samantha's son, Porter, was looking forward to being in a mainstream classroom with his peers, a big milestone in his development and something that both he and his family had worked hard for. Like many young children, his continued success depends on his exposure to his peers. To know that those hours of sitting outside of his bedroom of listening to him try to do what other kids do so easily, like take turns in a game that takes him three hours with a therapist to do, of doing that for over 30 hours a week since he was 22 months old, knowing that every single one of those hours could be dashed because we have to make a choice between his health or his education. When he's not seeing peers, when he's not seeing the model for communication and how to share and how to interact, He's not able to do those things. And to know that we might lose that and that he has to regress just because our state won't allow his school to make that choice, it is so painful because we have done everything right and we have sacrificed everything. And now we're being asked to choose between sacrificing his education and his life. And we are not okay with that. And neither are the other eight families in this lawsuit. Samantha and Porter's story is why we at the ACLU are getting involved. 
To learn more about our litigation in both South Carolina and Iowa, I spoke with Susan Misner, director of the ACLU's Disability Rights Project. So we just heard from Samantha Bovers, a South Carolina parent whose four-year-old son with autism faces serious health risks because of the ban on masks in school. Can you help us understand the broader context here. So what are these bans on masks in schools and what is their justification? The justifications that most of the proponents of mask bans have made are that uh, masking should be an individual decision and that parents should decide for their children whether or not they wear a mask. Where are these bans? How prevalent are they? There are eight states and counting um, where these bans have been put in place statewide, but we are hearing from other parts of the country where school districts have imposed a ban, for example. So this is popping up in a lot of places around the country. And for the school districts that actually decide to impose a mask mandate in violation of what the state mandates... What can happen to them? What are what are punishments for going against um, the the ban? Those also seem to be specific to the states. They've all designed their own punishments, but it can be everything from losing funding to losing accreditation as a school. Why are we so concerned about these bans? Who is most affected um, by them? We are concerned about these bans because. Students with disabilities, um, not all disabilities, but disabilities that are listed in the Centers for Disease Control guidelines of what medical conditions would make you much more vulnerable to severe complications from COVID. So those include things like lung conditions, heart problems, immune system disorders, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, those have all been shown to increase the likelihood considerably that if the child contracts COVID, they will have severe complications and may need hospitalization and risk long-term complications. I'm curious, can you talk about how the pandemic has already impacted those families and how it has impacted their education? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we are all tired. We are all pretty <laughs> done with this pandemic and it is, it is really hard for everyone. For families who have children with significant disabilities, it has been especially challenging, both because of the increased risk to their child's health, and so um, increased precautions that they need to take, but also because the remote learning children have had to try and get their education by video, essentially. And most children with significant disabilities find that especially problematic. Very few children with or without disabilities find remote learning to be as effective as in-person learning. But especially for, for example, a child with Down syndrome, they need the hands-on feedback. Let's show you how to do it. Let's help correct you in real time if there's a mistake. Yes, we'll give you the the one-on-one feedback that they get in-person in school. So without the in-person schooling. The parents have been trying to do this to the extent that they can. Some parents have hired additional help at their own expense to come into the home to try and help their student. Even with those measures, parents 
in our cases have reported that their children have regressed, that they've lost skills over the last year rather than gained them. So they're, they're really concerned about their children being able to make up that lost time and, and try to catch up with their peers. Schools aren't just teaching reading, writing, arithmetic. They are also teaching civic values and how we get along with other people and how we stand in line and how we take turns and how we care for others. Does this cut across um, socioeconomic lines and racial lines in particular? Sure. We know that disability is greater in poorer households for reasons that may appear obvious, less access to medical care, more access to dangerous conditions. So um, poor households tend to have higher rates of lead poisoning, for example. And once you have lead poisoning, um, that has a whole host of uh, consequences for the child. Neurological consequences. Neurological consequences, learning consequences, health consequences. Poor households also tend to be living in urban areas that um, may be in more polluted areas. So children have asthma more frequently. And asthma, because it involves the lungs, is one of the conditions that puts you at greater risk from COVID. So, and poverty and race intersect just as poverty and disability intersect. So all of those feed into each other so that we expect that more communities of color, more low income households are facing these problems than higher income communities. Parents have felt that they need to take the risk of sending their child to school because they don't have the option of quitting their job. That they know that if they quit their job, they won't be able to pay for the housing and food that their child needs. So they're risking that their child will go to school and wear a mask and hope that they don't get sick. So it's a non-choice for some households. Right. It's it's uh, between a rock and a hard place. So the ACLU is challenging these bans in both South Carolina and Iowa, as far as I know. Can you tell us how the ACLU got involved in these cases and why start with these two states? So we got calls from a number of affiliates saying that they were getting calls from parents just panicked that it was time for their child to go back to school. And there had been this masking ban and they didn't know what they were going to do because they didn't feel that their child would be safe. So there were already cases that had just been filed in Florida and Texas. And in South Carolina, the schools had already started. So that's where we filed first. It was just the most urgent and emerging um, crisis. And why was it an emergent crisis? What was happening that made it a crisis situation? In South Carolina, 22% of the new COVID cases were in children. So with the Delta variant, it seems to be infecting children in ways that other variants of COVID had not. And it's also getting children sick. And Susan, can you explain, and we've touched on it a little bit, but, but even more directly, why bans on mask mandates are definitively a disability rights issue? Um, and how do these bans violate the law? Sure. So... Our federal disability rights laws 
the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Rehabilitation Act protect people with disabilities. And disability is defined very broadly. It includes anyone who has a physical or mental health impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. A major life activity includes things like breathing or um, being able to have your heart work effectively. Both the ADA and the Rehab Act require that state and local government entities not discriminate against people with disabilities. And discrimination doesn't just mean exclusion, though we are arguing that many students are effectively excluded because the mask ban makes it unsafe for them to attend school. These laws also prohibit segregation. So if, as in Iowa, the state responds, well, students with disabilities don't have to go to school, they can just attend school remotely, that is segregating them from their peers, which is not just stigmatizing, but deprives them of the socialization that school inherently involves. It's also that that segregation is providing a lesser service. So not always, sometimes segregation, you can provide an equal service. It's still stigmatizing. It's still illegal. But we're also saying that students are being given unequal access to their education because if they go to school remotely, we know that that is not as effective a means of learning what they need to learn. If they go to school in person, they're doing so essentially in constant fear of getting sick. They're running a gauntlet that the other students don't have to run. And that's also a violation of these federal disability rights laws. Federal disability rights laws also require that covered entities like schools provide reasonable modifications of policies, practices, and procedures when needed to give a student equal access. Reasonable modifications may be as simple as um, allowing a student with diabetes to take a break to go to the nurse's office and get their insulin shot. Here, the reasonable modification is for universal masking. And I am hesitant to call following public health guidelines something that should be considered unusual or that people have to ask for. But if and when a student with a disability needs that as a reasonable modification, federal law requires that the schools provide it. You know, I think when people hear the word mandate, their civil liberty ears just perk up. Um, you know, the ACLU just published an op-ed in the New York Times saying that vaccine mandates, you know, aren't an infringement on civil liberties. Can you help tease that out for us a little bit more? And uh, can you explain where individual rights begin and end when it comes to healthcare or, or other issues that affect an entire community? Well, isn't there that old saying that your individual right to swing your fist ends at the point of contact with my nose, right? Um, so there is this very widespread misconception that wearing masks is primarily to protect the wearer. And it is true. It's, it's shown that wearing masks does protect the individual, but it actually primarily protects the public. So for someone who is infected but doesn't know it, asymptomatic, or someone who's infected and 
is just taking risks for other people. Wearing a mask is the best way to prevent them from infecting others. So we have a declarant in South Carolina who's a person with Down syndrome, was over 12, so she actually had been vaccinated and was wearing a mask very faithfully when she was in school. Other people were not wearing masks. She got infected with COVID and she got quite sick. We know that individual mask wearing isn't enough, that we all have to wear masks because so many people get infected and are asymptomatic and don't know that they could be contagious and infect others. I'm curious if in your career or if you're just familiar with other cases that have come up that are similar to this before the mask mandate ban, are there analogies in in jurisprudence? Vaccinations in schools are an analogous situation that we require all students with very few exceptions to be vaccinated in order to protect everyone. It's a small infringement on an individual liberty for a very major health benefit. One of the pieces that's really important here is that this isn't like getting the common cold. This is potentially a life-threatening public health crisis. Um, and that, that piece is important here, is it not? Right. We have not faced a pandemic like this in our lifetimes. Um, the number of people who have died is astronomical. And we're learning that the number of people who are having long-term health effects is even higher. Um, last number I heard was 20% um, of people who get infected, who get symptomatic COVID, um, develop long-term effects from that. But long COVID is a, a, a serious and debilitating condition where people have had to quit their jobs because of the mental and physical effects. Susan, I'm curious, what happens next in the litigation for these two cases, the one in South Carolina and the one in Iowa? So we just had a hearing Friday, September 10th, in Iowa, asking for a temporary restraining order. Um, the judge was very well prepared and um, we're providing some supplemental briefing and we'll hope to get a decision. And what would the decision there. mean? So the judge can either grant our request for a temporary restraining order, in which case schools would be free to impose masking requirements, um, or it would deny the temporary restraining order and we would move to a preliminary injunction hearing, which would have uh, larger evidence. So if a preliminary injunction hearing is an evidentiary hearing where you have more time to put on evidence and make your arguments. Temporary restraining order hearings are much faster, limited. And the obvious hearings. downside with, with the preliminary injunction hearing is that the order would stay in place until that hearing happened. Right. Every day in school, more kids are getting infected exactly. with COVID. Uh, yeah, I'm curious, um, there was the decision in Florida where the judge struck down Governor DeSantis's ban on mask mandates. Does that affect our case at all in terms of the precedent being set? It's on a different basis. So 
um, there have been a lot of different cases that have brought different claims. Um, we are um, only aware of a case in Tennessee in which a judge upheld a TRO on the same basis um, with a disability rights claims. I'm also curious, you know, obviously at the ACLU and particularly for you as a lawyer in the Disability Rights Project, um, we operate within the legal system and, and there are things that we can do. For people who are listening who are, um, you know, affected by the notion that um, these children are, these children's lives are essentially in danger because of what is a polarized political situation not based in science or fact, um, are there ways that people can get involved and and help? Absolutely. If they live in a school district that is not imposing a mask requirement, uh, and they're also in a jurisdiction where the Delta virus has been on the rise, which is still most places in the U.S., um, writing to the school board and saying, I support a mask requirement will be useful. Organizing with other parents to ask for the mask requirement. Um, if they are parents of a student with a disability or no parents of students with disabilities that make them more vulnerable to COVID, formally asking for a reasonable modification that there be mask mandates. That's essentially a prerequisite to a lawsuit. The school has very few defenses to such a reasonable modification request when the CDC, the Center, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association have all recommended universal masking for schools. Um, it is an imminently reasonable modification to ask for. Got it. Well, Susan, thank you so much for this. I just want to call out the affiliates. Um, the Iowa and South Carolina affiliates have been working so hard to pull this together. We have an amazing partner um, at Arnold and Porter, John Freeman, who's been doing enormous amounts of work. That's a law firm, Arnold and Porter. And Louise Melling, who's our, uh, the center director, has been uh, coordinating so much of this work. It's really been a huge lift to file these cases quickly, given the stakes. And it's, uh, I want to be really clear that I've played only a very small part in that work. Well, thank you. Thank you for the part that you played, Susan. It's always good to talk with you. Always good to talk to you. For parents like Samantha, these lawsuits are hope. They are also symbolic of the fight required almost daily to assert that people with disabilities are considered equal in the eyes of the law and in their daily lived experiences. Thinking about this in terms of discrimination is absolutely one of the main reasons we're a part of this lawsuit. And I also think one of the main points that many people who do not want to wear masks don't think of this. I think what many people fail to realize is that by telling people like my son, hey, there's this option over here for virtual learning that you can do if you have health issues, just go do that, pushes him to the side. And it says, he's not good enough, he's not smart enough, or he's simply not important enough to have access to the same things that other people do. And what it does is it is gonna create a whole group of people 
that our society says aren't worth as much and we can treat them less than other people. And that's not, it's not okay. And the law says it's not okay. And unfortunately, historically, it has been okay in the past, but we're past that point. Thanks to Samantha Bovers for sharing her story with us. And thanks to you all for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, stay strong.